Judges chapter 3 this evening. Judges chapter 3. When it comes to sports, I love to watch superstars like Miguel Cabrera and Michael Jordan. It's hard uh, not to watch them when they're in action. Uh, A guy who can take a whole team and put them on their backs and carry them on to a championship, hopefully. That happens for the Tigers. But equally exciting to me are teams that have no superstars, that have no marquee players, and yet they win the championship anyway. I think of the 2004 Detroit Pistons, who didn't have really one all-star. The one all-star that they had was only on the all-star team because he got voted in by the fans. The ones that were voted in by the coaches did not vote for any of the Pistons. And uh, and yet that year, despite having no clear superstar in their team, they were able to defeat the Los Angeles Lakers with Kobe Bryant and Shaquille O'Neal. The Pistons were a, a group of guys who understood their role on the floor and contributed to, according to what they were good at. And there seemed to be a different high scorer every night. Either Tayshon or Chauncey or Rip or Rashid or... Almost never been, but but he was there. But the team was the team was important, and and uh, they were good at what they did because they were about the team and not about the individual. In fact, it's hard to remember uh, too much about in the individuals. You, you think more about the organization. You think about um, probably the coach. The fact that Larry Brown was able to get these guys to buy into the system of playing the right way and then letting the results come, suggested something about his leadership. You know, in the Christian life, sometimes God accomplishes what He wants through the most unlikely ways, so that there are no superstars, so that there's not a one marquee name where someone can say, it was because of me, but rather that God gets the glory. And so He uses unlikely means, unlikely people, so that the glory is directed toward Him. Eighteen years have passed since Israel was last oppressed. At that time, it was under the king of Mesopotamia who had subjected them to His rule for eight years. But then they cried out to the Lord. And God empowered Othniel, this capable deliverer, to rescue Israel from this oppression, and then they had rest for 18 years. But as we know, the cycle would continue throughout this book of Judges where Israel would fall back into sin. They would forget God again. They didn't act according to what they knew. They knew facts about God. They had seen Him work, but they didn't act according to what they knew, and so they fell back into evil. And if this evil was going to be purged from among the people, then they needed to wake up. And that's why God again would send oppression upon them so that they would wake up and recognize that they needed to depend upon Him. And when they did, amazingly, God was there again ready to deliver them. This is what we're going to find happens again in our passage tonight. Judges chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. Let me read our passage for us. And then we'll see what we can learn from it. Judges chapter 3, verse 12. 
This is the Word of God. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered to himself the sons of Ammon and Amalek, and he went and defeated Israel. And they possessed the city of the palm trees. The sons of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, eighteen years. But when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer from them, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. And the sons of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. Ehud made himself a sword which had two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his cloak. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. It came about when he had finished presenting the tribute that he sent away the people who had carried the tribute, but he himself turned back from the idols which were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he said, Keep silence. And all who attended him left him. Ehud came to him while he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. Ehud stretched out his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. The handle also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not draw the sword out of his belly. And the refuse came out. Then Ehud went out into the vestibule and shut the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone out, his servants came and looked, and behold, the doors of the roof chamber were locked. And they said, He's only relieving himself in the cool room. They waited until they became anxious, but behold, he did not open the doors of the roof chamber. Therefore they took the key and opened them, and behold, their master had fallen to the floor dead. Now Ehud escaped while they were delaying, and he passed by the idols and escaped to Sirah, It came about when he had arrived that he blew the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And the sons of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was in front of them. He said to them, Pursue them, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan opposite Moab and did not allow anyone to cross. They struck down at that time about 10,000 Moabites, all robust and valiant men, and no one escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land was undisturbed for eighty years. After him came Shamgar, the son of Anath, who struck down six hundred Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. God uses unexpected means, unlikely means, to accomplish His purposes to show that He alone is the exclusive deliverer. God is the exclusive deliverer and loves to use the unlikely means to accomplish His purposes. Again, we see this cycle in beginning in verse 12. It starts with Israel's evil. They had been spared. They had been protected. They had been given peace as a result of Othniel's victory. But then they fall back into evil. Verse 12, Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So remember our, our cycle? Evil, 
oppression, a cry for help, and then deliverance. That's what we're going to see here again in this passage. So first, evil, verse 12, and then oppression. Second part of verse 12 through verse 14. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel. And then, verse 15, they cry out for help. But when the sons of Israel cry to the Lord, and then the next part, God delivers them. God delivers them through this man man named Ehud, a left-handed man. And after they have a time of peace, they're going to need to be delivered again. They're going to fall back into sin and oppression and going to need to cry out to help. Actually, we're going to look tonight at two judges, two deliverers. One is Ehud, the second is Shamgar. We only know a little bit about him. He would be what we call a minor judge. That is, we don't know a lot of detail about him, but apparently his his rescuing, his delivering is significant enough to to have been recorded for us. So we're going to spend most of our time actually talking about Ehud, obviously, because that's what we have the most material about. In chapter 2, verse 19, we learn that this cycle, after it comes to a close, after God deliver them, delivers them, they fall back into evil in a more corrupt way than before. And so God uses oppression once again to wake them up, to get their attention. This is Israel and spiritual idolatry, or what chapter 2, verse 17 and 18 call harlotry, spiritual prostitution, not giving exclusive worship to the one true and living God, giving their, their uh, worth or, or granting worth to a false god being unfaithful to the one and only true God. And that's why God sends oppression. That's why God allows them to fall into trouble so that they will turn to Him and be delivered. Notice the second part of verse 12. The Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil. So the reason that Moab is able to get the upper hand on Israel is why? in the biggest picture possible is why, according to this verse. God is the one who allows it. God strengthens this evil king in the sense that He allows them, him and his country to, or his, um, his, uh, his kingdom to, to have power over Israel. Now, do you think Eglon was aware that God was strengthening him? Probably not. Just like any other pagan king in the world. They have no idea that God is behind what is going on. That is, that God is in control of every single circumstance in this world. And this should encourage us, friends, that we should not, we, we should not fear the apparent powers that there are in this world. When kingdoms rise up and seem to be the most powerful thing in the world, we don't have to fear because we know that God is ultimately in control. He allows one king to fall or arise and another king to fall. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is like a river of water. God turns it wherever He wishes. We saw Isaiah on Wednesday night that, that the, the nations are like dust on a scale. And you just picture a scale 
and just a little bit of dust on there and God makes one little breath and blows them away. That's what the nations are to God. When they rise up and they seem like they're the most powerful thing, tangible thing that we can see in life, we don't have to fear because God is ultimately in control. And He was here with Moab. The king of Moab was Eglon at this time, and the Moabites were a thorn in Israel's side for years. Do you remember in Numbers chapter 22-24 through 24 when Balak, king of Moab at that time, enticed Israel to sin? First he did it, he tried to do it through Balaam the prophet, but he was unsuccessful the first several times, and then eventually he enticed Israel into spiritual adultery and physical adultery. That is, that they would fornicate with these Moabites and turn God's wrath against them. So Israel had Moab as their foe for years. The way Eglon rose to power, or at least he gained an upper hand, a greater amount of power over Israel, is found in verse 13. And, and that is by making an alliance with the Ammonites and the Amalekites. He found some other... Uh, kingdoms that were opposed to Israel and he got them on his side. And it tells us there in verse 13 that he took over the city of Palms at the end of the verse. The city of Palms. The city of Palms is described as the city of Jericho in Deuteronomy 34.3. This city was cursed by God in Joshua 6 after it had been destroyed by Joshua and his army. So, what, what, what we learn here in verse 13 is that they took over this decimated city, the city that had been destroyed. They go to this city which was in a strategic place and it was up on a hill, so it was at a geographically strategic location. So it would be easy to set up a fortress there and it was at the northern end of the, of the Dead Sea. And so there was a lot of travel that had to go through there. Benjamin... Benjamin's tribe was on the east side of the Dead Sea, and if they wanted to get over to the west side where the rest of their, the tribes of Israel were, they had to cross over right there at Jericho, the city of Palms. So the fact that Moab was taking his, he was setting up a fortress there, suggested it would hamstring Benjamin and probably the other uh, Transjordian tribes, the ones over on the the east side of the Jordan. And so, because of this strategic move by Eglon, he was able to gain uh, ground and power over Israel for, for 18 years, according to verse 14. And apparently, during these 18 years, Israel did nothing. They either were kind of hoping it would go away, or they were hoping it would get better. But over time, they realized that it was hopeless, apart from God's intervention. And so, in verse 15, we read that the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. They finally recognized that there is no hope in the false gods that they had pledged allegiance to. They finally came to the exact place that God wanted them to come. And that was to a place where they recognized that they needed Him that the gods of this world are worthless and do nothing for them. And this is a great place for us to be, isn't it? When we recognize our need for God. And we need to be re reminded of this 
regularly. We need to be reminded of this afresh because there are times when we think we can do it on our own or when we think something else is going to satisfy or do the job for us. And it's, it's at times of trouble many times that God reminds us that only He can do it, that only He has the power. Only He is worthy of our full devotion. The disciples recognized this in John 6 when Jesus said, after the, many of His followers started to turn away from Him, after Him preaching a kind of a difficult sermon, many turned away and Jesus turned to the disciples and said, will you turn away too? And Peter, on behalf of the rest of the apostles, said, where will we go? You have the words of life, Lord. See, they recognized that Christ was sufficient. That Christ alone was worthy of their devotion. And this is what Israel recognizes. They recognize that God must be depended upon. That they must turn to Him. That their faith must look to Him. And as quickly as they utter the cry in verse 15, God's ready to come on the scene and deliver, isn't He? Look at verse 15 again. When the sons of Israel cried, then the Lord raised up a deliverer for them. God loves to use the unlikely to deliver us. And He's going to do that through two men. The one we're spending the most time on is Ehud and then Shamgar as well. But two unlikely men to accomplish His purposes. We find out that this first man is a left-handed man. Notice, first of all, that the Lord is behind this success. It says the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gera, Benjamite, a left-handed man, and the sons of Israel sent tribute by him. So it was the Lord who raised up Ehud. It was the Lord who strengthened Moab to have power over Israel, and it was the Lord who strengthened Eglon. Apparently it was through this theocratic anointing that we talked about, the spirit anointing that comes on all the deliverers. Ehud is described as a man who is of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin, ironically, means son of my right hand. And yet we learn from the text that he is left-handed. The right hand in the ancient Near East was the strong hand. It was the position of power. That's why you read that God swears by His right hand. Christ is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The right hand was a symbol of power, wasn't it? And it was very unusual for a person to be left-handed. But Ehud was left-handed. Literally, the text reads, see where it says left-handed man in the middle of verse 15? The text literally could be translated, found in the right hand or right-hand-bounded. It's not, it's not actually translated as left-handed. The, the, our translators of the New American Standard, and I think all the translations do this, but it's, it's literally bound in the right hand. So he could have either been disabled in his right hand, or he could have been taught from an early age to be left-handed. By uh, One of the things they would do in the ancient Near East would, would be to bind their right hand. If they thought that their son was someone who was going to be a warrior... He would be a better warrior if he could, if he could um, fight with his left hand because it would be unexpected. In fact, it would be better if he could be both-handed, ambidextrous. He could switch hands in the middle of battle. And, and so perhaps that, that's what happened with Ehud. Whatever the case is, he, had, he, he was left-handed and, and he was 
the, of the tribe of Benjamin, the son of my right hand. And so he makes a plan to deceive this, this king of Moab and to kill him. He knew exactly what to do, and that's why the text just goes right into his plan. At the end of verse 15, the sons of Israel sent a tribute or a gift by him to Eglon. Once a king took over a land or a group of people, those people would be expected to give some sort of tax or tribute or gift to that king. And maybe part of their produce, some of their agriculture that they would get from the land. And so they, they head out. Ehud, along with several of the other men, along with all of these resources that they're going to give to the king. And the way that he was going to conquer Eglon was by appearing to be harmless. And he appears to be harmless in four ways. Number one, he brought a gift. He brought a gift in a group setting. Seems to be a harmless situation. This is something the king would often see from his various territories that he would reign over. And so he seemed to be harmless in that way. Secondly, he appeared to be harmless because he returned to the king alone. Notice in verse 17, he presented the tribute to Eglon. This apparently is in the group, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. It came about when he had finished presenting the tribute, verse 18, that he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. So first he presents the gift that these other men are carrying, and then he returns to the king alone. Now, if the king thought he was up to something, uh, then... Then, uh, or, or I guess I should say, he he would easily blow his cover if all those men stuck stuck around and they perhaps had weapons and they're standing outside the palace. But the fact that Ehud comes back alone suggests that he's harmless. And so first he brings a gift. Secondly, he comes back alone, which would have been suicide if he had no one to back him up. And then thirdly, he didn't appear to have a weapon. Notice verse. 16, Ehud made himself a sword which had two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his cloak. So in preparation for this, this takeover of, of uh, delivering Israel from this oppressive king, he prepares, he fashions an 18-inch dagger, and then he attaches it to his right thigh. When he would come near the king, he would have to go through a security check. Just like there is security detail for all of the main leaders in our world. You have to go through security before you can get to the king. And so the place that they would primarily carry a weapon would be on their back or on their right thigh. Uh, excuse me, on their left thigh. So they could reach across and quickly grab it, grab it and use it. They're, obviously, most people are right-handed. They would have quick access to it on their left thigh. And so the, the bodyguards, the security of the king, would notice that he didn't have any weapon on his back and he didn't have one on his left thigh. Perhaps they made him pull his cloak up to show that he had no weapon on his left side. And so in that way, he appeared harmless. He brought a gift. He returned to the king alone. He didn't appear to have a weapon. And then the fourth way he appears harmless is that he uses this ambiguous language in verse 19. Verse 19. But he himself turned back from the idols. Don't think anything like this is where his salvation experience. 
This is probably where the idols were located at Gilgal. This is where the, the false gods were starting to be set up in this specific location. So as they're traveling back home to the tribe of Benjamin, they, he turns back from Gilgal. That's the idea of turning back from the idols. And here's what he says. Here's his ambiguous message. I have a secret message for you, O king. So he appears to be harmless, fourthly, by having this ambiguous message. Now, it could be that Ehud led King Eglon to believe that, that Ehud was coming with a message that more Israelites were going to bow the knee to him, that they were going to give him tribute. This would have been great news because it wasn't all of the tribes of Israel that were under Moab's oppression. It was probably only the Transjordian tribes at this time, the two and a half tribes. And so he says, I have a secret message for you. So he might be, the king might be expecting him to say, well, there are more of my brother tribes that are going to bow the knee to you. But literally, the, word, the uh, translation there, I have a secret message, could be translated a hidden word. It could actually mean a, a hidden thing. I have a hidden thing for you, like it is in chapter 6, verse 29. That same word is translated as thing instead of word. So Ehud, I think, purpose, purposefully uses a word that can have two different meanings depending on the context so that the king might think that he's bringing something to him. Not a specific word, but something. What, what do you think a king like that would be expecting? Some sort of bribe, right? Corrupt kings expect to receive bribes. And so he says, hold on a second, King Eglon. I have something for you. I have a hidden word or a hidden thing for you. And King Eglon, according to verse 19, falls for the trap. Notice he says, keep silence. I think he's saying this to Ehud. Don't say another word. I'm going to remove everybody from our presence and it's going to be just you and me. And then you can give me that hidden thing. And this sets up for us the attack that's about to take place in verses 21 and 22. Eglon and Ehud are alone in his chamber, which was a room that was on top of a flat roof, and it was uh, had some lattice sort of uh, windows to allow the breeze to come in, but it would be a covered room so that it would protect them from the sun, and it was actually said to be the coolest place in the entire house or palace. So now we have the attack. The deception in verses uh, in verses 15 to 20 and now the attack in verses 21 and 22. Now if you're a little squeamish you might want to close your eyes for a minute while I describe what happens. That's a joke. You're still going to hear it. You'll have to clear, close your ears. The text says in verse 21 that he grabbed his dagger says Ehud, verse 21, stretched out his left hand, took the sword, probably better translated a dagger, it's 18 inches, from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. He thrust it into his belly. The word thrust means a fierce, devastating, and incapacitating blow. It's the word used of Joab when he came upon Absalom. You remember Absalom is riding through, uh, riding in the middle of this battle and he gets his hair caught up in the tree? 
And he's just hanging there. And Joab comes upon him, finds out that he's there, and he thrusts him through with three spears through the heart to make sure that Absalom was dead. That's the same word that's used here. It's a very vicious thrust of Ehud's dagger. And it must have incapacitated him pretty quickly because otherwise Eglon would have let out a scream and would have alerted the guards. But apparently he's not even able to do that so quickly. He does it so quickly. Notice um, verse 22. Uh, Actually, go back to verse 20 because you want to see how exactly this happens. Ehud came to him while he was sitting alone in in his cool roof chamber and Ehud said, I have a message, secret thing for you from God. And he arose from his seat. So Eglon starts to stand up, this big fat man, starts to stand up, and that's when Eglon pulls out his sword, his dagger, and thrusts him through. For Ehud, it was probably a deep thrust because he's not able to pull it back out. Probably a deep thrust, and then probably a strong pull upward. Probably to the left of the navel. This would rip through his largest artery, the aorta, and would cause instantaneous uh, severe bleeding. And it would cut the nerve that goes to his heart. The cutting of the nerve that goes to his heart would slow down his heart and cause his brain to stop functioning in five seconds. He would be quickly incapacitated. And the nerve also would cause his bowels to give way. So that all of the excretion that, that was being held in his body would be released onto the floor, which is what the text tells us happens. And he would bleed out in 45 seconds. Notice verse 22, the handle also went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade for he did not draw the sword out of his belly and the refuse came out. Some people have have um, interpreted this to mean intestines, that his intestines came out, but again, I think it has something to do with with the excrement that comes from his body, that his this nerve was cut and it released his ability to hold it in. And so there's a great amount of blood and refuse on the floor, and Ehud is unable to grab the dagger and pull it back out. The handle goes in after the dagger, and he's not able to pull it out. This would be important for Ehud, because how else is he going to get out alive? He's probably thinking, I need to fight my way out of this place, and I need that dagger. But apparently, in order, in the moment of a quick decision, he decides... If I try to get that out, I'm going to be covered in blood and excrement, and so that will clearly give me away, so I'm going to leave my dagger and get out another way. And so we have the escape in verses 23 through 26. It says that he escapes through the the vestibule. It's hard to know for sure what this is, but the New Living Translation translates the word as latrine. In those days, they would have an opening in the floor, and, and so Ehud would quickly be able to just go down that opening and make his way to the first floor and just leave without notice out the audience chamber below. Before he left, he locked up the, the doors so that it would delay the, the uh, security from finding out. And we see that in verse 24. When he had gone out, his servants came and locked, uh, uh, looked, and behold, the doors of the roof chamber were locked. And they said, he is only relieving himself in the, in the cool room. Literally, he is only covering his feet. That's what 
a man would do during the elimination of urine. He would cover his feet. And so that's why it says in our translation he was relieving himself. They waited a while until they were to the point of, uh, past the point of embarrassment and they decided to go in. Remember how dangerous it would be to come into the king's presence without being asked. Esther knew about that. She knew that she would be killed if she were uh, to go before King Xerxes without being invited. And so their delay allowed Ehud to escape. Verse 26. Now Ehud escaped while they were delaying. And he passed by the idols. Went back past Gilgal and across to Syrah. And this gave him time to, to, to... to uh, call out the rally cry, verses 27 through 29. He arrived back at the camp of Benjamin, and there he blew the trumpet, and he passes on the credit to God, verse 28. He said to them, Pursue them, for I have defeated the king of Moab, and I've given way for us to defeat the rest of the army. That's not what he says. He says, The Lord has given the Moabites into your hands. It's time to fight. He doesn't talk about himself and his accomplishments and the vulnerable position that he's put the Moabites in. He passes on all the credit to the Lord. He understood exactly what to do. That he needed to get his troops rallied to do the job and to to accomplish this defeat. And so, they uh, strategically take uh, this Jordan River, the fords of Jordan, the end of verse 28, and they seized those, that area so that the Moabites would not be able to escape that way. And amazingly, this small, insignificant, seemingly small and insignificant army is able to defeat 10,000 valiant warriors. Look at verse 29. They struck down at that time 10,000 Moabites, all robust and valiant men, and no one escaped. Apparently, men who had trained for this very thing to be in battle, and yet, because of God giving them into Israel's hand, they were able to defeat them. The result was, verse 30, that Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land was undisturbed for 80 years. But then, like all these deliverers in this book, Ehud died. Now, we don't have any clear uh, record that he died, but notice verse 31, we have a, a, an implication that he dies after him. All the deliverers come up. They deliver Israel. Some of them act in judgment upon Israel. That is, they weigh areas of judgment like we're going to see with Deborah. But, but, uh, but they all die. No matter how good they are, no matter how evil they are, no matter how many people they destroy, no matter how many years of rest they provide for Israel, they all die. God also delivers in unlikely ways, not just through a left-hander, but also through a man with a strange weapon in verse 31, Shamgar. Shamgar is apparently not an Israelite. He's a Gentile, and he's described as a son of Anath. Anath was the wife of Baal and a Canaanite warrior goddess. So either his family worshipped her and he was named after this goddess or they named him after his ability to fight in battle. There's actually a third possibility. He could have been named, it could have been from the town of Beth Anath. It's not exactly clear. Again, we don't know a lot about this man. Whatever the case, we have a foreign deliverer 
being sent to rescue God's people, Israel, from the oppression that they found themselves in once again. And apparently the cycle happens in this, uh, in this verse as well. But we don't have it detailed for us. Shamgar is able to, according to verse 31, kill 600 Philistines with an unlikely weapon. Notice, he struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. An ox goad was for, this is really profound, is for goading ox, oxen. I almost said oxes. Uh, oxen. One end of the 8 to 10 foot pole was had a metal tip on it and it would be used to prod the ox to, to move it in the right direction. The other end had a flat metal uh, edge like a chisel that would be used to clean the pruning uh, or to clean the, um, the plow. And so it's not really a weapon. It's more of a farm instrument, a farming instrument. And yet this is what he used to defeat 600 Philistines. Now this could have been at one time. It could have been over his whole lifetime. Whatever the case is, God used him to deliver Israel from these Philistines who were oppressing them. We don't know a lot about this man, but we do know that God delivered Israel through an unlikely man with an unlikely weapon, a foreigner with an ox goad. And when God delivers in this way, in unusual, unlikely ways, teaches us something about God. So in, in, in closing, number one, God is our exclusive deliverer. God is our exclusive deliverer. God takes pleasure in using unlikely people to accomplish His purposes. And so after reading a passage like this, we shouldn't say something like, wow, what a great man Ehud. He was so witty to be able to come up with this idea, this plan. Or what a great guy Shamgar. He must have been so good with that weapon. But instead we come away saying, the fact that God would use something unlikely, what a great God. He would allow Israel to be delivered in such unlikely ways. I'm reminded of the great message by Pastor Albright several weeks ago on a Wednesday night at our church. And if you missed it, I would commend it to you. From 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and 27. That God's power is made perfect in our weakness. That God uses the weak and the lowly and the unlikely to accomplish great things so that in the end, we can't say anything else except to God be the glory. Great things He has done. And I can't think of a clearer example of God getting glory from unlikely means than the story of Gideon that we're going to come to in a few weeks. Here's a guy with little faith and a very little army when all is said and done. And in the end, do you know who gets all the credit? It's God. No one says, wow, what a great guy Gideon was. Everyone says, what a great God to use someone of such unlikely means. God is our exclusive deliverer. You may look to someone or something else in this lifetime that you think is your Savior other than God. But Christian, your dad or your mom is not your Savior. God may use them to accomplish great things in your life and to, to deliver you and protect you from much harm, but if your ultimate trust is in one of your parents, 
then you will be disappointed because they will fail you. Christian, your child is not your Savior. Perhaps you see your child as the means by which you can maybe maintain your sanity or, or gain purpose in life. But friends, your kids can become your idol. And ultimately, our kids will fail us. And so if we're trusting in our kids to provide for us what we think we need, then we will be disappointed. And sadly, some kids will die before their parents. So we'll be disappointed in that way. Our kids are not our Savior. I am not your Savior. God may use me to encourage you in your relationship with God and maybe to guard you from evil, but I am not your Savior. There is only one Savior. And it is God. Isaiah 43.11 says, I, even I am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior. God is our exclusive Deliverer. And on this side of the cross, we know that Jesus is the ultimate Savior who brings deliverance from sin. And so we look to Jesus as our Deliverer. We don't find our ultimate satisfaction. It's fine to find satisfaction in your parents and in your children and in you know people here at the church, but, but ultimately your satisfaction must be found in God, in Christ, and in Christ alone. He is your exclusive Deliverer. God may use people to deliver, but He ultimately is the one that we are to look to for deliverance. And then number two, Christ is the unexpected Deliverer. Just like throughout the book of Judges, we're going to have lots of unexpected deliverers. People who we would say, I think we could choose somebody better than that God to deliver Israel. And Christ is in many ways that unexpected deliverer for us. When I say unexpected, I mean He was born of very humble means, of a poor virgin in a stable, in an obscure town. And then He was raised to be a less than exciting carpenter and to have no special features that would have caused Him to stand out And His first coming as a whole seemed very much less than spectacular. Other than the resurrection, He was actually defeated in death. Obviously, He did many great miracles, but those often go unnoticed to the unbelieving world. And to them, He was defeated. He was just like all the other pretenders that have come before Him. And so in that way, our Savior, Jesus Christ, is our unexpected Deliver. He looked weak, but He was strong. Christ is our unexpected Deliverer. He came to rescue us from the oppression that was brought on to us as a result of our sin so that God would use Him to wake us up, use our oppression to wake us up so that we would call out to Him for help and ask for deliverance. That's exactly where God wants us to be so that He can come to our aid quickly. And in the end, we can't say, I boast in my salvation. I boast in what I have done. We boast in nothing else except for the cross of Christ. We boast in that weak picture in many ways of our Savior dying. We boast in that. And in that weakness, God is seen as very strong as our Deliverer. And 
And in the end, all we can say is, to God be the glory. To God be the glory. Let's pray. Father, thankful for the reminder again of how You deliver through unlikely means. Thankful for for these men that You used to deliver Israel from oppression as a result of their sin. We're thankful for the unexpected deliverer that came into this world. Came very humble means didn't seem to be anything special. Had no no great forms or features. But you used him. He is the Son of God. He is the Son of Man. He is the Messiah. And you used him to deliver us from our sins, from the oppression that we brought upon ourselves because of our sin. And we praise you for that. And we're thankful for the reminder that you often give us that it is you who accomplishes your purposes. It is You who wins the battles. It is You on whom we must depend. Lord, remind us afresh that it is not about us. It's not about our popularity or notoriety or praise coming to us and credit coming our way, but it is that Your name would be praised. Help us to see that very clearly. Help us to honor You through Your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray in His name. Amen. 408.